Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. So, good evening. <clears throat> What a treat to have so much sunlight. <laughs> we had more light today than we had in the last 10 days. So I'd, um, I'd like to start just by telling you a little story about um, an experience I had earlier in my practice. So I mentioned in my last talk that I started this path when I was about 19. And uh, I had the good fortune of kind of diving in head first. I went and did a study abroad program in Budgaya in India, the place where the Buddha was enlightened, and lived at a, a Burmese monastery for a few months. And um, I met uh, two people there who changed my life forever. One was a man named Anagarka Manindraji, who I mentioned, and the other was a Sri Lankan man named Godwin Samaratne. And um felt like for the first time in my life someone was saying things that I had always known to be true in my heart, but couldn't quite articulate. Uh, I felt this profound homecoming as if this is why I was here on the planet. And so uh, I only had three weeks with, with them, the first part of our program. Um, but I was so moved by their presence and their teaching and um, their humility and kindness and gentleness that I had a really clear determination to go back and spend time with them again. Uh, particularly this one man, Godwin, from Sri Lanka. Had a wonderful sense of humor, just really lighthearted and a uh, very inquisitive, playful mind. And so a number of years later, um, when I got the news that Godwin Samaratne had passed away suddenly, uh, I, was, uh, I was quite shocked and disappointed, devastated, really, that I, I hadn't had a chance to go and practice with him. And he was younger than Manindra. So I realized at that time, I said, well, if I'm, if I'm going to see this person again in this lifetime, I need to go. I can't wait. So um, when I was about 23 or so, I went back to India to spend time with Manindraji. I wrote him a letter and, you know, said, I don't know if you remember me, but such and such, I'd like to come and spend time with you and practice with you. And I went over there uh, open-ended. I had no plans in my life, um, the good fortune and privilege of not having debt to pay off. So it was just open-ended. And I had a, a very, very strong aspiration to practice wholeheartedly. Um, a little bit unbalanced being kind of a 23-year-old young man as I had that warrior spirit, like I'm gonna get to enlightenment. <laughs> yeah, you know it's coming. <laughs> so, um, 
So I spent about three months with Manindraji, traveling around with him, um, practicing, and he basically said to me, more or less, you know, um, you're, you're, uh, you need to learn a lot more before I can teach you. <laughs> he said, you want to do PhD, but you're still learning ABCs. <laughs> so, uh, so he sent me to Goinka. He said, I want you to go do some of these Goinka courses. So any of you who've done a Goinka Vipassana course know that they're very intensive. It's a 12-day course, 10 full days, um, hour-long, two-hour-long sittings, no walking meditation. Um, you know, we call it meditation boot camp sometimes. So I did three of those in a row, <laughs> pretty much. Kind of not back-to-back, but <laughs> I was 23. <laughs> and I got really unbalanced. Just all of this emotional uh, trauma from growing up came up and um, really intense rage and violent anger and thoughts inside. I just couldn't really handle it. And I didn't know what was happening inside. Um, And uh, it was kind of breaking down. And so um, by this time, the third retreat, I was down in uh, outside of Mumbai in Igatpuri, which is where Goenka's main center is. And um, I had sat a retreat there on my own, and then Manindraji came. It was where he stayed for half of the year. And then I did another retreat. And um, it became clear to me that I needed to head back home. I was too unbalanced and kind of coming undone. And uh, I needed more support than those conditions could offer. And so I remember uh, going to see Manindra in his cottage, cottage K9, um, one evening uh, to say goodbye. One of the hardest things I had, uh, I've, I've done in my life, because I knew he was, he was in his mid-80s at that point. It was very unlikely I would see him again, and I didn't, I didn't ever see him again. And so I told him, you know, what was, I had told him what was happening, but I, you know, through tears, I told him how, um, how overwhelmed I was and uh, how I think I needed to go home. I couldn't stay. And he was very straight with me. You know, he said, uh, he said, you will take all of your suffering with you wherever you go. And I said, yes, I I know that I, I need more support than what's here for me. And so we continued talking, and um, eventually it was time to say goodbye. And I was just a mess. I was just bawling, because I loved him so much. And um, so I said goodbye, and I was standing at the door, and I kind of like bow, and he sort of puts his hands on me, and still crying and crying. (laughs) And I start walking out, and he starts walking with me, because I'm so upset. And I walk down the two steps of his cottage and he walks with me and I walk down the little front, little pathway and I turn right and he's kind of walking alongside me, you know, because I'm still sort of crying. And, uh, and then I, it's a little, I take, make to the, take the next turn in the path around the side and he's still there with me walking. <laughs> and at some point I realized he's going to keep walking with me. So I stopped. And I turned to him and I said, 
Sentiment energy, it's okay. I'll be okay. And he kind of uh, looked at me and said, oh, oh, okay, okay. Kind of turned around. (laughs) Back to his cottage. It was a very profound moment for me. I remember those first few steps on my own, taking responsibility for the path, recognizing that no one can hold my hand. I need to walk this path myself. And it took a lot of courage, it took a lot of confidence to say goodbye and to say, I'm okay, I'll be okay. And then to take those first few steps. Meninergy used to say all the time, any aspiration you have can be accomplished if you are wholehearted and you know the way. So what I'd like to talk to you tonight about is um, one particular quality on the path that's very essential, particularly for long retreats, and that's the quality of faith, sadha in Pali, sometimes translated as confidence or trust. This is from Ayakema, German nun who I quoted last time. We have a heart and a mind. The mind is the thinking, logical, analytical part. And the heart is the one that has the feeling of emotion. If we don't use both, the logical, analytical part, and the emotional feeling part of ourselves, we're missing out. Half of ourselves is not actually engaged. We can't do this with half a person. Whatever we do, be it meditation or anything else, it has to be done wholeheartedly. So sadha, faith, is in some ways the domain of the heart. We're stronger than we know. Faith is about recognizing that which we can trust, that which we can rely upon. So this quality of faith shows up in many places in the texts, many different lists. One of the most common is the the five indriya, the five spiritual faculties. And this word indriya is very interesting. It it means, uh, sometimes it's translated as leaders or governors. Uh, They're the things that kind of move forward, move us forward in the practice that lead the way. But indriya also means a faculty in the sense that it's innate. We actually have 22 indriyas. Um, The life force is one of the indriyas. Um, Sight, vision, sound, the uh, hearing capacity, the smelling capacity, the tasting capacity, many, many different faculties that we have as human beings. And there are the five of them that are called spiritual faculties because they have this potential to further our progress on the path. And the understanding, the idea is that we're born with these, just like we're born with the capacity to hear or smell or taste or to see if we're sighted, to hear if we we have that capacity. So it's, it's part of our kit as human beings. There's a certain potential that we have, it's innate, but it's not necessarily developed or it's been developed in a different way or, or the five of the, the five indriya haven't been developed together and balanced. 
when they're fully developed, they become what are known as the bala, the five powers. Something very strong and powerful that we can draw on. So I'm only going to talk about um, faith tonight. I'll mention all of them, and we will. We have touched and will touch on all of all of the others over the course of the retreat. So the second indriya is energy, then mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And the Buddha says, when these five faculties are developed and pursued, when they're fully mature and ripen, one gains a footing in the deathless. They have the deathless as their goal and consummation. They merge in the deathless, these five faculties. They take us to the goal, to the end, to the fruit of the path. So what does this word mean, sadha? It comes from the Pali word sadhati, which literally means to entrust the heart. To entrust the heart. To place the heart upon something. Tanisro Bhikkhu translates it as conviction or confidence. And I'll say more about why in a little bit. Sharon Salzberg, who has a wonderful book entitled Faith, refers to it as trusting your own deepest experience. And I really like that because it points to something that we can each know and feel for ourselves. Trusting your own deepest experience. So this quality of sadha, of faith or trust, confidence, has a sense of possibility. It's a basic trust that there's something worthwhile to be alive for, that there's something of value to being present to this experience of incarnation. That amidst all of the challenge, the difficulty, the violence, the suffering, that there's something deeper, truer, more beautiful and ennobling and uplifting about being alive that's possible, that's available for each of us. So this quality of sadha is the beginning of any endeavor. There needs to be faith, there needs to be confidence or trust that there's something worthwhile to engage in anything. Whether it's getting into a relationship, picking up a musical instrument, we have to have some faith, some confidence. Yeah, I could learn to do that. Oh yeah, I could be in a relationship. I have something to offer. There's something that I could receive from this to come on a retreat. There's that sense of maybe I can. Let's just see. Without this sense of trust, confidence, or faith, life's pretty bleak. When there's no sadha, there's nothing to live for. There's no reason to wake up in the morning. No reason to go through another day. Nothing worthwhile or meaningful. If we don't have anything that we have faith in or trust that we aspire to. Or less dramatically, we just get bored. There's just a sense of apathy. So what do we place our faith in? What do we trust? The values of our society would, would 
have us place our faith in the pursuit of success, of accumulation, material wealth, fame, sensual pleasure. Do they deliver? So on retreat, sometimes we can be sitting here, particularly, as I said last week, you know, you can muscle through a a week-long or a 10-day retreat, but, you know, a (laughs) month-long, you can't do that on an act of will. So you may have found yourself sitting there going, what am I doing? (laughs) Wasting my life, walking back and forth, (laughs) pacing here. When we're not connected with sadha, the practice gets very dry and pointless. If there's no confidence, if there's no faith, we don't make effort because there's no point. There's nothing to trust. There's nothing to rely on. There's nothing to aspire to. And when we are connected with this sense of faith, any aspiration you have can be accomplished if you're wholehearted and you know the way. There's a quality of integrity to our effort, a sincerity, a completeness in how we show up. So this this factor of faith is distinct from, in the West, how we use the word faith. It doesn't mean belief or blind faith. It doesn't mean abdicating responsibility to something or someone else without reason or without evaluation. So blind faith or belief is based on a fixed idea that we superimpose onto experience. Belief stops inquiry. It freezes reality. It has the effect of closing the mind down, of narrowing the attention. Faith, on the other hand, opens. Sadha. It opens to possibility, to inquiry. So faith is always connected to reason in Buddhism, in this path of Dhamma. It doesn't coerce. It doesn't obstruct or block thinking. It doesn't shun other points of view. Instead, it supports inquiry and reflection and investigation to actually look more deeply with a really critical discernment. The purpose of faith, of sadha, is to develop confidence by dispelling doubt through inquiry, through investigation and understanding. This is from the, um, the Thai monk and scholar, uh, Venerable Payuto. The faith included in the development of wisdom is perhaps better defined as self-confidence. A person has a strong conviction based on critical reasoning that the aspired to goal or ideal is both valuable and attainable. This faith inspires a person to validate the truth which he or she believes to be reasonably accessible. And the German translator, Nyaniponika Terra, says, faith is reasoned conviction based on one's own understanding. So sadha, it's not an end in itself. 
It's a means. The goal of faith is always wisdom. It's a step. It's an instrument towards developing wisdom. The danger, if sadha is not accompanied by and balanced by wisdom, is that if it's blind faith, it can lead to abuse, to harm. And we've seen over the generations, and particularly in the last year or two in various Buddhist communities, uh, when there's misplaced faith, how that can lead to great harm. If, uh, if it's not accompanied by wisdom, the, one of the drawbacks of faith is that it can, it can turn into attachment to a particular person or a teacher and obstruct progress. So the Buddha even discouraged having too much faith or dependence on him personally as an object of faith. There's one story in the texts of a layperson, uh, Wikali, who was uh, sick and dying and had been longing to see the Buddha for a, long, for a long time, but hadn't been able to go and see him because he was so sick. And finally, he's on his deathbed and the Buddha comes to see him. And Wikali is so elated, finally, that he's seeing his teacher, the master, and the Buddha chides him and says, what's so great about seeing this body? This form, one who sees the Dhamma sees me. One who sees me sees the Dhamma, for in seeing the Dhamma of Ikali, one who sees me, one sees me, and in seeing me, one sees the Dhamma. He says, don't look at me personally, look at the truth of what I teach. So the various lists in which faith appears in the early texts always begin with faith and end in wisdom whether it's the Indriya or one of the other uh, lists that appears regularly for householders is developing certain qualities, four qualities that are conducive to benefits in the future. And those are faith, virtue, ethics, generosity, and wisdom. And there's about half a dozen other lists that begin with faith and end with wisdom because that's the trajectory Wisdom means seeing clearly into the nature of things. Panya means discernment, to know directly. And what wisdom sees, what wisdom knows, is suffering and the end of suffering. That which is stressful and what, what, what is, what's the release of stress. Wisdom discerns the nature of things as they are. It sees things in terms of impermanence. The inability of conditioned experience to provide lasting satisfaction, dukkha. And it sees things from the perspective of anatta, not being substantial or solid, coreless, empty. So where's faith come from? So the cause, the most immediate cause of this quality is something worthwhile and reliable to place faith in. We need something to trust. In order for faith to be conducive to wisdom, it has to be placed on that which is actually reliable. So in uh, 
In this tradition, we talk about placing faith in the triple gem. Faith in the Buddha, which again is not the person, but the qualities that he represents, the capacity for goodness and awareness that we each have, that we can develop. He didn't refer to himself as proof of the authenticity of his teachings, but instead referred to the way things are and to the fact that we are capable of seeing for ourselves what he's pointing to. And so this is faith in the Dhamma, in the principles of truth and goodness that he taught, which are there for us to contemplate, to examine, to study, to practice, in order to understand correctly and fulfill the potential of the path. These are the teachings on cause and effect, on the natural law of things, teachings on suffering and the end of suffering. Having faith or confidence or trust in the Sangha, in the community of practitioners that embody the values of ethics, harmony, friendship, and goodness. This is from um, Ajahn Sumedho, the founder of the Western branch of the Thai forest lineage, uh, the Ajahn Chah, lineage of the Thai forest tradition, in terms of faith and the triple gem. He says, awareness is your refuge. Awareness of the changingness of feelings, of attitudes, of moods, of material change, of emotional change. Stay with that because it's a refuge that's indestructible. It's not something that changes. It's a refuge you can trust in. This refuge of awareness is not something that you create. It's not a creation. It's not an ideal. It's very practical, very simple, but easily overlooked and not noticed. When you're mindful, you're beginning to notice it's like this. So sadindriya, the, the faculty of faith, of confidence, the point is that we each have this, it's innate, and it can be developed. So the development of this quality of trust, it happens Gradually, there's a progression. And it begins with coming into contact with the teachings, hearing something, reading something, meeting someone. There's another uh, teaching uh, Donald referred the other night to the 12-fold chain of causation, dependent origination, this uh, one way of understanding the arising and functioning of suffering, beginning with ignorance and moving all the way through those uh, links in the chain of contact, feeling, craving, uh, attachment, and on to becoming birth, aging, sickness, death, and suffering. That chain, there's, a, there's a, another way out. You can actually break the chain at any one of the links, but the other way out is with suffering. 
instead of suffering leading to more ignorance and bewilderment, when we're paying attention, suffering leads to search, to the sense of why, what's going on here? How can I understand this differently? And then we seek. And if we have the good fortune to come into contact with something worthwhile and reliable, sadha can grow. So there are many stories throughout history of someone just seeing a practitioner or a monastic and through the visual contact of seeing a renunciate, their faculties bright and serene, their face peaceful, faith arising. The very powerful story about a king in ancient India, King Ashoka, who... Um, and during the first part of his reign was um, kind of a tyrant, was hungry for more and more territory and power and was conquering vast areas of ancient India. And it's said that he was walking on a battlefield after one battle and just witnessing the carnage, bodies mutilated, torn apart, dead, blood. And he saw across the battlefield a monk, a renunciate, wearing rag robes, walking, completely at peace, serene. And the contrast was so stark that something in him shifted. He realized this is not good what I'm doing. And he became a devout follower of the Buddhist teachings and was one of the um, great spreaders of the Dhamma at that time. He supported the, the whole Sangha and erected pillars throughout India with uh, sayings of the Dhammapada etched into them that still stand to this day in different places in India. You can go and see the Ashokan pillars, the arising of faith, of confidence from contact, from, from meeting someone, from seeing someone. That was for me, meeting Meninjaji and Godwin. The trajectory of my life changed. So we come into contact with something and it resonates, it makes sense. And then we take it in. We internalize it. There are many passages uh, in the Pali Canon where the Buddha talks about how to evaluate a teacher. What to do, how to, uh, how to consider whether or not you should place your faith in a teacher. To spend time with them and observe their behaviors to see, uh, it's actually funny, it's the, the text says, for one who can't read minds, this is, this is what to do. So if you can't see into the person's mind and know the content of their, of their consciousness and psyche, then the Buddha gives you very specific instructions. Well, spend time with them, pay attention to how they behave, and see if there's a presence of greed or hatred or delusion in their words, in their actions, in their deeds. The Buddha even talks about what, how to evaluate himself in one text to observe and investigate him and his actions, his conduct, to look and see, are there the presence of defiled states, 
So again, this kind of dualistic model of unskillful emotions and actions and words, mixed states. Well, it's, it's kind of like there's some good, but there's also some harmfulness going on. Or is there a sense of uh, skillfulness, of goodness? Pay attention to how does he relate to sense pleasures? Was his attainment very recent or did it happen over a long period of time? How has this teacher responded to fame and renown? They're really good questions for a spiritual teacher, you know? And the Buddha said, you know, even with me, pay close attention. Don't just place your faith in someone. One of the most famous texts from the, um, from the Pali Canon, and many of you have probably heard, is the Kalama Sutta. I want to read some of it to you because there's a lot in here about the development of faith and its balance with wisdom. So the, the story is uh, this one town, uh, Kesaputta, where the Kalamas lived, and the Buddha came to visit, and they said to the Buddha, um, listen, all these different teachers come through, and every time someone comes through, they explain and elevate their own teachings and doctrines, and they ridicule and disparage and revile and vilify everyone else's teachings. But then other people come around and they do the same thing, and we're confused. We don't know what to believe. And the Buddha replies to them. He says, it's fitting for you to be perplexed, O Kalamas. It's fitting for you to be in doubt. Doubt has arisen about a perplexing matter. And then he says, come, Kalamas, listen. And listen to the criteria he offers for what to place faith in, for what to have trust or confidence. And he says, don't believe on the basis of oral tradition. Don't believe on the basis of holding to a lineage of teachings or on the basis of hearsay, on the basis of referring to scriptures or sacred texts, on the basis of logical reasoning or inferential reasoning, or, or only on the basis of rational reflection. Don't believe because a teaching accords with your personal opinion or view. Don't believe because of a speaker's charisma or inspiring appearance. Don't believe because you think this person is our teacher. But only when you know for yourselves, these things are unhelpful. These things are harmful. They're censored by the wise. These things, if undertaken and practiced, lead to detriment and suffering, then you should abandon them. And when you know for yourself, these things are helpful. They're harmless. They're praised by the wise. These things, if undertaken and practiced, lead to well-being and happiness. Then you should engage them. So when they didn't understand, he didn't encourage them to believe anything or only to think and reason. He encouraged them to consider carefully and judge the matter according to what they could observe and know directly, to the causes and effects that they were able to witness for themselves. So we come into contact with a teaching or a teacher and we consider, we gauge against our own experience and see, what do I know to be true? 
If it makes sense, if it's reasonable, if the teacher's sincere and unbiased and wise, then we bring forth effort and energy. We apply ourselves, we contemplate, we investigate, we keep looking into the teachings until we start to see and verify what they're pointing to for ourselves. And in this way, faith and confidence actually becomes wisdom through the process of practicing. It becomes verified faith. We know for ourselves. I think this path is perhaps the only path that I know of, the only tradition that I know of, where those who have reached the goal are known as faithless. (laughs) Arahants are said to have gone beyond faith. They've realized the truth, so they no longer need to have confidence in or place faith in another person or some idea or explanation. So sadha begins outside as something external and then through reflection and practice becomes internalized. And then the more we practice, investigate, contemplate, look, it becomes verified through our own direct experience. So I invite you to just look and see, to acknowledge what's the wisdom, what's the experience that you have already. You wouldn't be here in this room if you didn't have some. Do we trust our own experience? Do we have confidence in it and draw on it as a resource? There's this wonderful really beautiful image to me, this touching image of the Buddha statue during his struggle for enlightenment sitting beneath the Bodhi tree when he was plagued and beset by doubt and fear and confusion, uncertainty, insecurity. He drew on that quality of confidence and trust. He touched the earth, touching the ground calling on the earth to bear witness. It's not always easy to touch that place of knowing, of trust inside. To feel the ground of what we know for ourselves. So it's helpful to reflect It's helpful to recollect, what do you know for yourself? What are the benefits you've seen? Is it helpful to calm the mind? Does that lead to benefit? Is it helpful to look closely at your own experience, to look into the mind and observe it? Does that lead to benefit? So faith opens us. It opens us to the felt experience of being alive, to the possibility of touching something deeper than what we can know through the six senses. The confidence 
the trust in the Dhamma is encapsulated in one of the qualities of the Dhamma, which in Pali is the word ehipasiko, ehipasiko, which means come and see. Or like we would say today, check it out. Check it out. There's a sense of a deep invitation to see for oneself, to make this shift from the practice as an idea to a felt reality, to a direct experience. And to do that means being willing to recognize what we don't know. What we have confidence in, what we trust, becomes the ground to open to what we don't know yet. Wisdom begins with the willingness to not know. To say, I'm not sure, let me see. What is this breath? Do I actually know? What is this mind? What is this body? What is this moment? Takes deep trust to be willing to not know, to open. Not with anxiety, but with interest, with confidence. It's a beautiful quote from, uh, from a poet who says, when I step out beyond all that I know, into the unknown, I trust that one of two things will happen. Either I will find solid ground or I will be taught to fly. So sadha also means, can also mean aspiration. This is a less common translation. This is the translation that my teacher Ajahn Suchitto uses. A sense of aspiration, confidence in the path, but also in oneself and in the potential that liberation is possible for each of us, not just as some theoretical idea. Another thing Manindraji always used to say, it was totally struck me on the very first retreat I did, which was a weekend retreat, Friday to Sunday. I'd been meditating for like all of two weeks. And all weekend long, he was saying, enlightenment can happen at any moment. <laughs> that, was, that was the kind of faith he had, the kind of confidence in the path and in each of our potential to wake up. Enlightenment can happen at any moment. Pay attention. Be wholehearted. When the conditions are right, when the awakening factors are ripe and in balance, the mind can open to something deeper. This is from the Majjhima Nikaya, from one of the suttas where the Buddha talks about his path and his, his awakening. After coming to terms with uh, his own willingness to teach and share what he had learned, he said, the doors to the deathless are open. 
let those with ears bring forth their faith. The doors to the deathless are open. Let those with ears to listen bring forth their faith. This kind of aspiration is different from grasping or striving. Aspiration is a willingness to explore, to make effort, to open to possibility. Expectation, striving, has grasping. It's about getting something or becoming someone. Expectation is a movement forward in time into the future. Aspiration is a deepening into the present. It's an arriving. The image that's used for awakening is like a lotus blooming. It opens. It doesn't move forward. It opens right where it is. This is from Ajahn Suchito on this process of what's required to really trust the unknown, to let go beyond which, beyond that which we uh, we know. He says, actually, letting go requires holding, not exactly holding on, but holding or being held. You're held with awareness, held with tenderness, held with patience, held with this beautiful firmness that's not savage or harsh, but just held carefully. And in the holding carefully, holding tenderly, holding with clarity, something in us starts to feel that and we can begin to relax. It's like coming out of panic as if someone were putting their hand on your shoulder when you're in some kind of panicking state and you can just feel that steady presence. You're not judging, not being judged, not being told to snap out of it, but you've got something to navigate towards. Some sense inside can navigate towards that steadiness, that gentleness, and then ah, you come out of the trance. This occurs through your nerve endings, not just as an idea. Letting go requires holding, being held. That's why the basic Buddhist practice is about taking refuge. And more than an act of faith, an increasing ability to sense that, to sense that place where we feel held without being shut down where you feel comfortable, where you feel allowed, where your madness is allowed to be, where the panic, the anxiety can actually receive something. Here, this is this. You don't have to be in that, there's this. So it's not a letting go into nothing. It's sometimes called the deathless element or the Nibbana element. And that very phrase gives you a sense of something substantial, even though there's no substance. 
It gives you a sense, though, that it's not about your vacuity or hollowness or just dropping out. There's some presence that you feel that you can release yourself into. Otherwise, you don't release. So let yourself be held in awareness, held with this firm tenderness of trust, of confidence in the truth of your own experience. One of the most powerful questions I've ever been asked by my teachers was, what do you want? Menindraji asked it to me that night when I said goodbye. He said, what's your aspiration? What do you want? When I first met Ajahn Sachito, he asked me, he said, well, depends. What do you want? Why are you here? What do you want? Are you willing to trust each moment, just what's happening right now, without needing something else, without moving into the future, without relying on the past, without turning to thought, without even needing to analyze or understand it, but to open, to not know. I'd like to end with a poem that I wrote after one retreat. It's called Trust. I trust what this body knows, breathing in, breathing out, the way home. I trust the ground which I can stand upon, the earth that rises to meet my feet and gives gently beneath my weight. And I trust that ground which I cannot stand upon, the falling away to which everything returns. I trust what this body knows, the pulsing and quivering, the tight, the hard, the smooth, rough, and flowing. I trust the great oak and the white pine who do not question where the next branch will grow, who are tall, solid, gnarled, and strong, who bend in the wind. I trust the sun that shines and warms the taut green skin and deep blue water of this earth, that sun toward which we all instinctively turn, which touches our billion faces alike, asking only the song of our sincere living in return. I trust what this body knows, breathing in, breathing out, the way home. I trust what this body knows.
that the magnolias in spring take time to bloom, that the autumn leaves do not struggle to reach the ground, that we too are beautiful, brief, free. So let's sit quietly together for a few moments. The doors to the deathless are open. Let those with ears to listen bring forth their faith. so much for your kind attention. So we have a little time for walking practice and then we'll gather again at nine o'clock for a sitting and some chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.